you have a Bible with you, we're looking at John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And next week we'll also be looking at John chapter 10. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they did not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would um, you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see. I pray that you would effectually call your sheep this morning. I pray that you would encourage um, those sheep who uh, tend to worry, those sheep that tend to, to obsess about things. I pray that you would give them peace this morning. I pray that you would be my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing in this series on John, and today, the, the, the opening question I have for you today is uh, this, is, have you ever been fly fishing? You'd think in the Northwest, ever, you know, people would have, most, a lot of people haven't. Um, Probably, I don't know, six or eight months ago, uh, one of your elders, good friend of mine, took me fly fishing for the first time in my life. And we had a, we had a great time all day long. But there were some things that, that, that were different for me. Right? I grew up in South Florida. In South Florida, I lived within about 500 feet of the intercoastal waterway, so I could wake up in the morning as a kid in the summers, literally put on a pair of shorts, grab my dog, grab a fishing rod, and just go. And just fish all day and not think about it. I never got a license. I never got anything. Not so with fly fishing. Right? Besides having to have a license, besides having to have waders, besides having to, to have a guide, have all these things, the two things that were interesting to me about fly fishing that I'd never done before, really, is when you're fly fishing, you have to, you have to set the hook and you have to keep tension on the line because they use barbless hooks out here. Why? To give the fish a chance. Come on. <laughs> right? So, so, so you, you're fly fishing, fly fishing, fly fishing, and then suddenly the guy will yell, hit, you know, set the hook, set the hook. And you're like listening to him and not setting, and the fish gets away, of course. Finally, you get it that when you feel something nibble, you have to set it. You, 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 have, to be, you have to yank that thing to make sure it's set in the, the fish's mouth because they can nibble at the bait or the fly, but not actually take it. And then, if, of course, if you don't keep tension on the line, they'll just spit it out and keep going. Now, that is 
an awful lot like the way the gospel works and the, what we've been talking about in the gospel of John. Remember, Jesus is a fisher of men. What does Jesus do? Jesus sets the hook. Technically, the Holy Spirit does, right? We can nibble at the gospel all we want. We can read the Bible. We can go to church. We can do all of these things. But unless the Holy Spirit sets the hook of the gospel, unless he, he actually calls us to himself, it doesn't work. And unless he keeps tension, we will get away. But the promise of the gospel is that he will always keep tension. Now, and also, unlike fly fishing, he doesn't throw anything back. Right? That was the other thing. I remember calling my wife, and she said, how'd it go? I said, have a great day. She said, we having fish for dinner? No. They make you throw everything back. Jesus won't throw you back. That's good news. Today's passage is, is all about that, except it's using a different metaphor. The metaphor that, it uses, that Jesus uses this time is the metaphor of shepherding and taking care of sheep. And he talks about being the gate or the door for the sheep in really three different ways. He talks about being the door out for the sheep or the gate, being the door of the sheep and the door in for the sheep. So Jesus talks basically about three different entrances to a sheepfold today and on one hand you say that if you just told me that that would be an interesting sermon I'd be like mm, we'll see we'll see <laughs> right so in order let's look basically at the first point this morning the door out what does Jesus mean notice what he says in verse 10 he says truly truly I say to you he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So chapter 10, interestingly enough, is a continuation of chapter 9. If you're reading chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, and then you get to chapter 10, it can seem like that Jesus has made like an abrupt change, or that John has just decided to talk about something completely different. But in fact, Chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, is really a commentary on what happens in chapter 9. In order to understand that, you need to order to understand what I'm going to call macro context of this passage and the micro context, or an overarching context of this passage and the, the specific context of this passage. And the overarching context of this passage is Ezekiel chapter 34. You see, in the... In Israel, the elders of Israel, and in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of the people who had sort of religious titles, they were responsible to shepherd the people. They were responsible to care for the people. They were responsible to teach people the law of God, all of these things, and they failed. And Ezekiel says this in chapter 34, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, Shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food to the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains, on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So on one hand, the shepherds of Israel have completely failed. 
And not only have they failed, but they have done harm to the sheep. That, that their, their failure at shepherding has not only caused the sheep to be sick and, and weak, if you will, but they've actually caused the sheep to be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, what's going to be done about that? God follows up. I actually read that to you as our call to worship this morning. Chapter, verse 11, God says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. In verse 15, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then if you jump down to verse 23, he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So on, on one hand, there's a rebuke. The shepherds have failed. On the other hand, there's a promise that God basically says that I myself will shepherd my sheep. I myself will gather my sheep in. I myself will pursue and seek the lost sheep. And my servant David, and in that sense he means David or one of his sons, will be the shepherd over them. And so which is it? God, are you going to be the shepherd over Israel, or is David going to be a shepherd over Israel? And the answer is yes. In other words, God will shepherd his sheep Israel through his servant David, one of his sons, and that servant's name is Jesus, right? The, the big struggle for people from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, remember how it begins in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God himself became a human in the person of one of David's sons. That person is Jesus. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. That, that the overarching concept here is that the shepherds of Israel have failed, and so God himself would have to come in, in, in the flesh in this person of one of David's sons to shepherd his sheep. And Israel's sons, shepherds have failed, and that's, the, that's what chapter 9 is all about in the Gospel of John. Chapter 9 is a glaring example of the failure of Israel's shepherds to take care of them. Remember, chapter 9 is a very famous passage, because in chapter 9 of John, is where Jesus heals a man who has been blind since he has from birth. And you would think when Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth, that people would rejoice at that. Well... Jesus heals this man who has been blind from birth. He goes and tells his neighbors, and they're just like freaking out. Wow. And so what do they do? They go and tell the, the Pharisees, the shepherds, the people who have cared for this guy, this rabbi Jesus healed a man who's been blind since he was born. We, we've known him that long. And they said, was it on a Sunday? Was it on Sabbath? And they said, well, I don't know. I think so. Hmm, well, we got to go check into this. And so they go check in. They ask the man's parents, and they're so, so mean to them. Basically, in verse nine, chapter 18, or verse 18 of chapter 9, it says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself, right? Those are pretty wise parents. 
right? The law comes after you and they're like, hey, here's the facts, but he's a grown man. Go talk to him. And so they do. And so they say, uh, they said, so for the second time, they called him, the man who'd been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, Jesus. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now you would think that would soften the hearts of even the most grinchy of Pharisees. And how do they respond to that? With more anger and more abuse. And they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Mm. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. If this man is not from God, he could do nothing. And they said in verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. So here's a man who has basically been healed by Jesus. He's just saying, I don't know what happened. And instead of rejoicing with him, the religious leaders cast him out of the synagogue. They cast him out of the flock. And when that happened, Jesus went and found him. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Think about that. The man doesn't know who, who, who Jesus is because he hasn't seen him. And he has seen him now. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Who is he that I may believe? You, you're looking at him with those eyes that I healed. And some Pharisees overhear that, and they say, oh, what, are we blind too? And Jesus basically says, if you think you can see, yeah, you're blind. And that is where chapter 10 packs up, picks up. He's still talking to these Pharisees. And he's letting them know how they have failed. But not more than that, he's letting them know how he actually has come to do the job. That he has come to shepherd his sheep. And that's where he picks up and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter by the sheepfold, but by the door climbs in by another way. And basically, in this passage, it's helpful to understand that Jesus is talking about two different kinds of sheepfolds here. He begins, if you can imagine a journey geographically, he begins in the city and works his way out to the country where there would have been two different kinds of folds. Imagine you're, you are a, a shepherd and you bring your sheep to market or you bring your sheep to, into a large village and there would be a giant pen where everyone kept their sheep. And so you put your sheep in that pen. We'll call that the city pen, it, it, different than what's coming up, which is a country pen. And so the, the, all the sheep would go in there. There might be 50 sheep. There might be 100 sheep. There might be more sheep. And all of the shepherds would hire an under-shepherd or a guard to stand at the gate and basically watch the sheep. And then when it was time to go, what would the shepherd do? The shepherd would come, and he would basically go into the... He would, show his ID, you know, to the, the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper would say, okay, I recognize the shepherd. He would let him in. And the shepherd would go into this huge pen, which is amazing to me because sheep are the, the dumbest of all livestock. Right? I, I was just watching a homesteading video. I don't know why I started watching it. And it said, he, here's, the, here's, 
animals that are easy to take care of from the easiest to the hardest, right? Chickens apparently are the easiest to take care of. Full-grown cows are easier to take care of than the last on their list, which was sheep. And yet, a shepherd can walk in, and I don't know how they call sheep, I've never heard it, and they say, here, sheep, 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 sheep. And all of the sheep hear that, but only his sheep respond to it. That's true. Jesus isn't just making this up. That's how it works. So you go in and you say, here, sheep, 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 that his sheep and only his sheep come and follow him, and he leads them out. This is the door out, right? He leads them out of this massive flock and out of this massive uh, enclosure and leads them to his own fold and to his own sheepfold. So what Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, whoever entered to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brought out all of his own, he goes before them, sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, everyone knew what Jesus was saying. That was common knowledge. And yet, when you get to verse 6, did you notice what it said in verse 6? This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So what he has told them, something that everyone would have been familiar with, and it says this figure of speech, they didn't understand it. Well, there's the key right there, because Jesus was using a figure of speech. In other words, it isn't that they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. What they didn't understand was who Jesus was talking about, or whom Jesus was talking about. Jesus, of course, was talking about himself, that he's the true shepherd. He is the one who came to gather his own sheep from among the flock, the, the larger flock, if you will. He is the one who calls his sheep, they hear his voice, and they follow him, and only they follow him. It's interesting in the Gospel of John, I think I've told you before, that there are all these doctrines that are here that are very clear. The doctrine that Jesus is talking about here is the doctrine of effectual call. At least that's what we Presbyterians call it. That there are two things. There's a general call and there's an effectual call. General call is this. Here sheep, here sheep, here sheep. Effectual call is the sheep that really belong to that shepherd. They hear his voice and they follow him. So the shepherd and his sheep and only his sheep follow him. And those who belong to Jesus come to him. So every week for 17 years, <laughs> I've stood before you <laughs> and said, please come to Jesus. And the question is whether or not you've heard that. Whether or not you can hear that. Do you hear it? If you do hear it, you must come. And Jesus calls his sheep out of, what is he talking about when he calls his sheep out? Well, in this specific context, he might be talking about calling them out of Judaism. He might just be simply talking about calling his sheep out of sin and misery. But either way, he calls them out. He calls them out of the place they were to take them to a place where he wants to be. I remember a therapist telling me, Tommy, that God is disrupting your peace in order to take you to a place of greater joy. A lot of us, we just get in this kind of like stasis where we don't want to move. I think most people don't do more things in their life because they don't like moving, right? I'm in the process of moving right now. It's like, mm, should we pack up all this stuff or not? Mm, nah, let's just stay here another 20 years. But if Jesus is calling, I, you, I hope you, you have heard that theme from me in the past several weeks. Is Jesus calling you? Is he calling you to himself? But is he also calling you to something different, something greater, some type of ministry? 
And if he is, follow him. You see, the, the flip side of, of Jesus calling you is that once he calls you, once he has set the hook, he will never, ever let you go or abandon you. Right? The hope of the gospel isn't just that we'll be saved from our sins and that we gut it out. And hopefully, that at the end of the day, I'll get to heaven and God will say, Tommy, were you good down there? And I'll say, well, sort of. And he'll say, tough. And so I better just keep working hard. That's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus has opened my eyes to, to his own work for me on the cross. And I have by faith believed it. And he has taken me unto himself. And that's where he goes next. That's what the door of is all about. Notice when the verses 7 and 8, it says, So Jesus again said to them, remember they didn't understand, so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. (laughs) All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. So they they don't get it, what Jesus is talking about. So he clarifies, okay, what do you mean by the gate and the door? Jesus, I am the gate. I am the door for the sheep. And what does he mean by that? Well, Remember I told you, you have to keep a little geography in mind here. He has led them out of the village, and he's taking them home to his own flock. And somewhere the shepherd needs to, to camp for the night. And they would make enclosures made out of stones. And they, it'd be basically a big semicircle with one hole in it where the sheep could come in and the sheep could go out. And in the evening, the shepherd would lie down in front of that hole. He would be the door. The, the shepherd would be the door of the sheep. Now, what did that accomplish by the shepherd being the door of the sheep? Well, it accomplished two things. Predators could not get into the fold, and sheep could not get out of the fold. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Not only do I leave my flock out, but once they are in my enclosure, they will never escape. They will never get out. They will never get kicked out, and nothing can touch them aside from my providence. Remember my favorite, we're actually going to do it next week at the, um, at the service that we're, we're doing for my installation. Is G, this, there's another doctrine here. It's the, it's the preservation of the saints, or the perseverance of the saints. Remember the benediction that I use all the time, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is that saying? That there's absolutely nothing in this world that can touch you, that can separate you from the love of God. Does that mean we don't have suffering? Of course we have suffering. Of course we have trials. Of course we have temptations but we also know remember from heidelberg catechism chapter uh, question 27 is the question that asks what is what do we understand by god's providence and the last part of it basically says that we understand that all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand that jesus if jesus has has called us and jesus has saved us he will never ever let us go Jesus, later on in this passage, Jesus will say, no one can snatch them, my sheep, out of my hand. Nothing can touch you. Now, if that's all true, what does that mean? How does that, what, what does that have to do with any of our lives? And the answer is this, you can stop worrying so much. I am amazed. One of the things, I've been a pastor for 25 years, maybe longer now, and I'm amazed at how much worrying I see Christians do. It's one thing to be concerned if you've got a sick child or a sick parent or something. It's another thing to just lay up at night worrying about things. I've done that. But if this is true, 
if nothing can come to me except by God's fatherly hand, I can stop worrying. Maybe I need to, to pray through my feelings. Maybe I need to let God know, like, hey, I'm not cool with this, or this is really bothering me, or I'm worried, I'm, I'm concerned about my child, but, but to be eaten up with worry all the time, we don't have to. Christians should be the most free people in the world, and often we're the most worried. I mean, I hear Christians more than anyone else worrying about the government, worrying about what's going to happen under Trump, worrying what's going to happen under Joe Biden, right? And I've got concerns, but at the end of the day, Jesus wins. At the end of the day, whatever is happening, God is going to use for his glory and for my good. I don't have to worry about it. Now, I might have to remind myself of that. I might have to preach that to myself. But at the end of the day, that's what the truth is. And Jesus says this. He says that all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. So on one hand, he's saying that, that all who came, the Pharisees are thieves and robbers. That's sort of a backhanded insult to them. But also the church, is, interestingly enough, is understand the thieves here to be something else as well. Tertullian in the fourth century, I believe, said that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and the two thieves that he was crucified between were moralism and liberalism. Now, in his words, liberalism would be, would be for us what relativism is. The, the, the two thieves of the gospel, the things that steal our joy, the things that, that, that make us not glory in the cross of Christ are both legalism and relativism. In other words, legalism says if I don't, I, I have to obey the law or God doesn't love me. If you live like that, it says you don't understand the gospel, that the, the cross has been stolen from you. On the other hand, if you say none, none of this matters, you have no idea of the depth of your sin. And you, the, you've also been uh, experienced thievery of the cross. And what, what does the gospel say that's different? Remember the beginning of the gospel of John said that Moses came uh, with truth, but Jesus came with grace and truth, right? Because the, the, the moralist wants truth, but not necessarily grace, and the, the relativist wants grace, but not necessarily truth. And what the gospel says that in the person of Jesus, we have both. We get truth, and the truth is, is that you and I are, are, are more broken and sinful than you could ever imagine. That, that you and I, that, that, that the depths of our separation from God are, are almost unimaginable. Grace, however, in Jesus says this, is that God himself has come to shepherd us in the person of Jesus. That God himself has paid the price in the person of Jesus. That God himself has borne the curse. God himself has borne our sins. He has freed us from the guilt and power of sin if we would only believe. And do you believe? Last point as we continue on, is the door in. And I'll close with this. Jesus says in verse 9, he says, I am the door. Notice it just says period. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says, if you want to be saved, you have to enter through me. He didn't say, if you want to be saved, you have to follow my teaching. If you want to be saved, you have to be good. If you want to be saved, you've got to read the Bible. If you want to be saved, you have to go to church. You have to go to mission field. You have to do all that. He says, if you want to be saved, enter through me. And saved from what? Well, saved from our sin, saved from our misery, but even maybe more so saved from our self-righteousness. 
and, and I'll cl close with this story. It's one of my favorite Spurgeon stories. Many of you know Spurgeon's probably my favorite preacher of all time. I've read a lot of Spurgeon. And in his autobiography, he tells the story of becoming a Christian at age 16 and going back, going to church for the first time. So Spurgeon, by the way, read most of the Puritans that were available by the time he was 16 and became a Christian. So he's pretty smart. And he had better one-liners at age, at age 16 than I did at, at 50, right? That he's just that good. And so he goes to church for the first time and tells people he'd become a Christian. And someone immediately asks him, my son, what have you given up for Jesus? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And he says, have you left your family, your home, your possessions? What have you given up for Jesus? Spurgeon at the age of 16 says to him, well, my friend, apparently I've given up the one thing that you haven't. And what would that be? Well, my self-righteousness. Zing! <laughs> And he went on to find a new church the next week. However, <laughs> you get the point, is that oftentimes we think about, we, if, I, if I'm going to trust Jesus, I need to stop doing all the bad stuff, where the reality is for a lot of us, we have to stop being so self-righteous. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, help deliver us from not only our sins and, and badness and the curse, but deliver us also from our own self-righteousness. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen.